What is academic freedom? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Jacob Levy. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Jacob Levy. Jacob is Tomlinson Professor of Political Theory, Professor of Political Science, and Associated Faculty in the Department of Philosophy at McGill University. His areas of research include liberal and constitutional theory, federalism and local self-government, multiculturalism and nationalism, freedom of association, and the history of political thought, especially centered on the 18th century and Montesquieu. He's the author of many books and articles, including Rationalism, Pluralism, and Freedom, and The Multiculturalism of Fear. Jacob has also been on The Curious Task with me many times before, and we encourage you to check out those episodes as well. Jacob, welcome back to The Curious Task again. It's great to be back. And it's great to have you on as always, Jacob. So as you all know, we base each episode on a question and go where the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, what is academic freedom? And this will essentially give us a chance to explore your thoughts, of course, on academic freedom, but also how that applies to free speech on the university campus and so on and so forth. And before we jump right into that, though, I did want to sort of set the stage for the discussion with sort of a context setting device. I've seen you speak about and I've also read transcription in one of your lectures where you start ultimately by noting that it's important to start talking really about what a university is especially as it's considering it's a self-governing institution and so on and, and, and so forth, before you get into all, the, all this other stuff. So c- could you explain why that's important? Why should we really recognize what a university is in the context of all these discussions about, you know, civil rights, free speech, safe spaces, and all that kind of stuff? Uh, I mean, there, there, there are a whole lot of good reasons to pay attention to what universities uh, really are, but specifically in trying to think about the questions about uh, debate and inquiry at universities, uh, debates that very often, and as we'll talk about, I think too often, are uh, characterized in terms of free speech. It's important to wrap our heads around what universities are because academic freedom is a different concept. And it's a concept that arises in the context of the university and is importantly older and institutionally differentiated from the broad liberal democratic understanding of free speech. It serves institutionally specific purposes. We're not going to be able to make them unless we're talking about that institution. Academic freedom isn't a a free-floating extra-institutional right. It's not something that uh, you would put into a charter of human rights. It's a practice that is specific to the institutional form of the university. And uh, so we need to be able to talk about the university in some kind of institutional detail in order to understand what's important about how we structure debate and inquiry in that setting. It has relationships to free speech, uh, but it's, it's really not the same value. And we run into some problems in university contexts when people start to substitute that non-campus value of free speech for the campus value of academic freedom. 
So when it comes to what, what the university is in and of itself, um, and we talk about the keys to sort of, as you said, sep- understanding, for instance, why the quote-unquote free speech discussion, if you will, is different when you're talking about, for instance, a, a public forum or or uh, just, you know, the, the idea of the public sphere more largely versus sort of a, a university campus per se. Um, one error, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but one, one error that people make it seems in your mind is that they sort of start talking about the university as if it's sort of this this neutral platform or or forum for example that it's not uh at its core sort of what what you call an uh an enterprising association that the idea that this is where we go where we have debates it's a neutral forum so shutting any down and so on and so forth is violation of the fruit that's where that train of thought starts but but you make one of the keys to your thoughts on this really seems to be that you have to understand what that the university is not neutral in that sense there is a purpose for it that's right. Uh, the, the university is committed to um, the discovery and the transmission of knowledge. And it's committed to those things against the background of a theory about how you get them. You get the discovery of new knowledge through organized research that uh, requires specialized training and that requires the ability to learn from what has gone before in ways that will structure future inquiry. And the transmission of knowledge depends in part on the ability to directly access the materials in which old uh, knowledge is transmitted. That is to say, the library is a critically important space of the university, the research and teaching library. But so is the classroom. And the classroom is a space where knowledge is transmitted, having been discovered through research, having been discovered in this structured, organized way is then communicated to the next generation of people in the scholarly enterprise. By contrast, the neutral public square, the neutral public space, says uh, there's value in self-expression. And that value in self-expression is something that just everyone uh, has, regardless of the content of what they're saying, regardless of how they're saying it. And regardless of what kinds of resources they're drawing on to communicate it, the paradigmatic case of the neutral public space for speech is the corner of London's Hyde Park that is traditionally allocated to the right for anyone to stand on a soapbox and say anything for any length of time, regardless of whether they have an audience. And most of the time, they really don't. What they're doing is expressing themselves, not communicating. In a university, we are concerned with communication, concerned with specific kinds of communication, the communication of knowledge and communication uh, about the questions that are currently up for dispute in advancing new knowledge. For a shorthand, the university is committed to the research and teaching enterprise and the way in which we structure speech, debate, and inquiry in the university uh, is in the service of that mission, not in the service of romantic self-expression, not in the service of uh, the, the sheer ability to speak your mind no matter what, nor in the service of off-campus political purposes, for example. The, the purposes of democratic debate about politics aren't the same. They are tremendously valuable and important for democratic politics. But the university is not in that sense 
a political space. We are not here in order to do politics. We're here in order to do research and teaching. And be, before we move on to a couple other things, I'll I'll see if this digression takes us too far off track. If it does, I'll put us back on. But but I do want to make a point about it for a second because you know there, there's a lot of folks out there that might grant, for instance, you know, okay, yes, a university is a self-governing institution. It's off doing its own thing over here. It's going to set its own norms and rules. The public square, if you will, is different. But the grenade sometimes some people like to um, chuck into the conversation is, well, hey, if it's not political in the sense as we just talked about, when discussions of, for instance, funding and so on and so forth from the public purse start get entering universities, then the whole discussion of academic freedom and so on and so forth and the, the self-governing institution uh, doing doing its own thing and setting its own norms and so on and so forth, that's it, it sort of confuses the issue. Is this valid in your, in your, in your mind to even entertain beyond a, a few minutes? Like, do, do you think it does confuse the issue? And, and if so, how? Uh I don't think it does very much, um, but my my views about this, I'll, I'll admit, are a little bit idiosyncratic. The the core par- paradigmatic ways of talking about academic freedom, which mostly we'll spend the rest of our hour talking about, really do treat the university as a freestanding institution. Uh, and the universities, when they were founded, they might have benefited from some kinds of governmental patronage. But they were not fundamentally, in our sense, state institutions. That's not true anymore. Uh, Almost all of the world outside the United States has its university systems almost entirely directly supported by the state. They are, in that sense, public institutions, not anymore private associational institutions in the way that a great deal of U.S. higher education still is. It's my view that states in supporting universities should still be understood as supporting universities and that the understanding of what that institution means, of its functions, of its purposes, of its distinctive institutional character has to survive the transition from quasi-private to quasi-public. That doesn't mean states couldn't do other things. States are allowed to have their propaganda ministries, and they're allowed to have their uh, strictly vocational, non-degree-based training programs. They're allowed to have a whole lot of other things. But they have wanted to have universities. They've wanted to participate in and kind of borrow the value of that institutional form as it's developed over nearly the last thousand years. And I think that if you're doing that, then you are substantially bound to still understand the institution you're supporting as an institution. Um, there are official uh, uh, official city or provincial operas, official city and provincial ballet companies, official city and provincial or federal theaters. Uh, but we allow those concepts, opera or ballet or theater, to still be institutionally what those have traditionally been. We understand that the state is meaning to support a particular kind of activity and enterprise, not to destroy the activity and enterprise by radically instrumentalizing it to contemporary political debates. Mm. And, we, and we recognize that something would go wrong if, in a liberal democracy, uh, the, the party in power tried to turn the 
provincially supported opera or the federal theater that exists in the United States and Kennedy Center or, um, into straightforward tools of partisan propaganda. Mm. We'd understand that was damaging rather than participating in the enterprise. That's the kind of position I want to take about public universities, that first and foremost, they're still universities. And if, if the public sector wants to do other stuff, it should do other stuff, not channel the other stuff through the university simply through the financial takeover. Mm. Yeah, in, in other words, and I'll see if I can split the difference between two sides, if you will, when, when some some folks think of the state as, for example, uh, subsidizing business and entrepreneurship in general, the state does not then create a, a bureau, for instance, to tell them what to do. Uh, and then on the other hand, if when most people think of the state supporting the arts, uh, typically that doesn't mean writing the, uh, the show itinerary or agenda, if you will, or telling ballet people how to do their steps in, in that sort of way is the way you think of it. That, that's right. And and neither, and this gets to the um, inappropriateness of free speech as a central category, neither does it say in creating the theater at Kennedy Center, what we've created is a public square that any audience member can walk up the stage on and begin their political rant. Right. It should neither be a tool of elite-driven propaganda nor an open, neutral public space. What it is is a theater. Right. And I think that that's a bunch of excellent context setting for what, what what we'll do is is get into more drilling deeper into academic freedom itself. So so if if one having said all that, then if one of the things a university in, intends to do, hopefully, is create an environment for academic freedom, then in that sense, first let's actually start off with what does academic freedom generally mean to you? Okay, um, uh, I'll start with the least controversial part and then go out in a couple of concentric circles. The least controversial part and uh, probably the original, the longest standing piece that people have defended, not originally under that label, though, starting in the late 19th century under that label, is the freedom of research inquiry by professors. Um, The freedom to take ideas where they lead you, take the the content of scientific inquiry where it leads you to allow your research to reach whatever conclusions, however controversial they might be. That's what's most central. Um, And from long before there was a phrase like academic freedom, there were disputes in medieval universities over whether university professors could conduct inquiry into theological questions in ways that were not strictly constrained by the norms of orthodoxy of the Catholic Church and whether they can conduct research into ethics in ways that were not strictly in the service of declaring that the currently reigning king was acting morally. That's first. Uh, Second in historical time, um, though really strangely controversial to this day, is a protection for what is referred to as extramural speech, extramural utterances. What does that mean? Uh, Extramural means outside the walls. The university is a walled, gated community, traditionally, physically in its architecture, even when not physically in its architecture, in its organization. In order for professors to be free to conduct their research, so the theory goes, um, they must not be subject to punishment within the university for their speech on irrelevant other things. This is the most free speech-like moment of academic freedom 
but it's it's very roundabout. If I, as a professor of biology, go out into the public sphere and make arguments in favor of communism and atheism, and these were the two standard cases as academic freedom got institutionalized, uh, particularly in the United States in the early 20th century. If I go into the public sphere and make arguments in favor of communism or atheism, then the university is going to come under pressure to fire me. Fire me from what? From my job as a professor of biology. Academic freedom says that those extramural utterances don't count as reasons for the university to act against its scholars. You may not be punished for your political and religious unorthodoxy in your capacity as a scientist, as a philosopher, as an instructor, as someone engaged in the scholarly enterprise. So this is kind of radical open-ended free speech, a kind of Hyde Park stance toward what professors say when they're not on the job. Why? Not because that free speech is treated as being central to the university's mission, but because there's an institutional, institutional equipment treating it as irrelevant. My, my atheism that, from the perspective of wider society, looks public I'm going out in public, I'm writing an op-ed, I'm giving a speech in support of atheism. From the perspective of the university, is something like my private hobby. It's not my job, and therefore it won't be taken as a reason to evaluate or discipline me in my capacity as a researcher. Then the next two extensions, um, and I strongly believe these to be the case, uh, but they are not always respected in the official documents of academic freedom. The next two extensions are extending those two thoughts, freedom of inquiry within the scholarly enterprise and freedom from punishment for your non-scholarly other speech from professors to students. I think that academic freedom applies within the classroom. That doesn't mean the classroom is a site for free and open conversation. It means that within the confines of whatever method is being used in this class, here we're teaching you to be a physicist. We're teaching you how to conduct experiments in physics. You will be free to conduct your experiments, to conduct your research as a student that lead where the experimental evidence leads you, regardless of whether it happens to agree or disagree with the professor's pre-existing views. Uh, now, there's... It will rarely be the case that in an undergraduate natural science class, the undergraduates will be reaching scientific conclusions that are controversial and at variance with what the professors already know. But it is in principle possible, and the more we move from the natural sciences into the liberal arts, the more that matters. It matters in my classes in teaching political theory that I say to my students, you are free to write papers where the arguments lead you by the standards of arguments that I'm going to teach you using the kinds of evidence in the way that I'm going to teach you how to use evidence. But your conclusions are not prescribed. Your conclusions are wherever the ideas and arguments lead you. And your grade is not going to be affected by whether I happen to like your conclusion or not, only by evaluating your use of the standards of argument and evidence 
that are appropriate to this subject matter. That's one, the, the freedom of inquiry as it applies to students. Then there's the freedom of extramural speech as it applies to students. What does that mean? Well, when I'm grading my students, I not only am forbidden from giving them a bad grade because I don't like the conclusion of their paper, if their paper is constructed in accordance with good standards of argument, I also may not give them a bad grade because they are off writing things in the campus newspaper that I don't like, or they're off running for political office under a party that I don't like, or they belong to a religion that I don't like. The immunity of the scholarly enterprise from adverse consequences based on politics and religion, especially, that happen outside the scholarly space, that's an academic freedom that students have, as well as being an academic freedom that professors have. Um, now, what's true for all of those cases is that there's uh, there are a set of rules and standards that belong to each domain of inquiry. I'm free to conduct my research however I like in whatever direction it leads me within the argumentative and evidentiary standard that apply to me as a political scientist. A student is free to reach whatever conclusions uh, their arguments lead them to within the standards of argument and inquiry, and so on. That means that academic freedom is in a, a very important way, a collective associational freedom of units of universities. Disciplines most characteristically, disciplinary departments most characteristically, uh, because they do need to be able to uphold their standards of inquiry. The idea motivating the academic freedom is to say our research and our teaching will do a better job at building knowledge and transmitting knowledge if people are free within those intellectual structures to reach particular to, to reach any conclusion. It's not to say um, that when I'm in an astronomy class, if I try to substitute astrology for it, that what I do still counts. Right. Um, I, I can do well as an astronomer by coming up with some evidence that there's a 10th planet out there whose gravity is, is putting a wobble into the uh, orbit of Neptune. And by providing evidence of the kind that is recognizable to astronomy as a discipline, I will not do well as an astronomer. I will legitimately not do well as an astronomer. If I say, I know there's a 10th planet because uh, Mercury is ascendant in Scorpio. I don't even know, actually know how to assemble a, an astrological sentence, but I think those are words that show up. Leave it to people's imagination. I think they get where you're yes. going. <laughs> yes. Um, and here's one of the moments in which academic freedom starts to look not like free speech. In order for the freedom of inquiry and that freedom to reach different conclusions to make sense, it has to be within the structure of relatively agreed upon standards of evidence and argument. And that means to the exclusion of all the other kinds of stuff that people might want to say or draw on. Uh, doesn't mean the disciplines don't change at the borders, doesn't mean new methods of inquiry aren't discovered, but what it means for a new method of inquiry to be discovered is in part for it to be successfully, persuasively communicated to existing practitioners of the scholarly enterprise. Uh, it remains in a growing, ongoing way 
unassociational freedom of the people who are in the university business within one of those organized domains of inquiry. Academic freedom, uh, when it is claimed as a protection, gets claimed by the individual scholar. You may not fire me. You may not give me a bad grade. But what's appealed to is only complicatedly an individual right. It's an individual right only to be judged according to the standards of our organized domain of inquiry. Uh, It's an insistence that uh, you may not apply external standards, either my unpopular conclusion or my unpopular speech about other stuff. You may not apply those external standards to my internal activity of scholarly inquiry, scholarly teaching, scholarly learning. And I think that's actually an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jacob Levy today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including... Elizabeth Aragona, Vincent Geloso, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. It's The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jacob Levy today. Jacob, our first half was great. I think we did a lot of context setting right towards the end of the first half there. We were talking about going through what, what academic freedom means to you, and you explored a couple different pillars of that. Um, one thing that I, I found interesting, and in, at least in something I've read on, on you talking about this topic as well, is that, for instance, having said everything you just said, for example, it seems you use an interesting turn of phrase to crystallize your point. At least that's the way it comes off to me, and I understand it, that everything you just discussed in, in a way is actually creating, if you will, a safe space to do the things you talked about. And I think this is where some of this language gets very interesting because, of course, there's sort of a, a politically charged you know, way people use the word safe space in a derogatory form. But but in, but in, in the literal sense, it seems to me that you think that the sort of discussion about people accusing the university of being a safe space or having safe spaces or whatever, of course, there's a lot of layers to this conversation. But you at least seem to think that it's it's fair to at least start by thinking that academic freedom in the way you described it is a space to safely do the things that you're talking about. So we at least have to understand that to distinguish it from, as you said, sort of a soapbox. That, that's absolutely right. The, the university as a whole enterprise, a kind of walled and gated community that I talked about before, and the units of the university, those domains of inquiry, the disciplinary departments, the particular classroom, all of those are ways of keeping a variety of external forces at bay. We don't want our domain of scholarly inquiry of the discovery and the transmission of knowledge to be instrumentalized to your political dispute, your religious dispute. Uh, And so we will define a space for this other thing that we're doing. It's a physical space, but it's also a normative space. Uh, We will differentiate what we are doing here from all of those other things that are argued about in other ways out there. And we will protect the people in this space from here being punished, whether that means being given a bad grade or being denied tenure or being fired as a, an instructor, uh, for things that don't belong in here. 
Now, as the university gradually becomes a more and more segmented institution over the course of the last few centuries, as the growth of disciplinary departments becomes more and more a feature of university life, and as they start to take on more and more distinct characters as domains of inquiry with methods of their own, they also start to become safe spaces from each other. It becomes important that the philosophy department can carry on as a philosophy department without constantly having the physicists say, what are you doing? That doesn't look like real knowledge. Stop doing that. Start doing something that we can recognize as having experiments in it. That doesn't mean there won't be some moments of interdisciplinary conversation where the philosophers and the scientists, and this very much does happen between philosophers and physicists, where the philosophers and physicists will get together and talk about the question of what expanding knowledge looks like in light of both of those domains of inquiry. But the day-to-day activity really has to be insulated. That means that uh, the professor in a classroom has to pay attention to the insulation and not to disrupt, as it were, their own class by constantly bringing in irrelevancies. If a professor says, I no longer believe in the domain, in the in the enterprise of philosophy, and I'm just going to talk politics at you for a while. They're actually violating the safety of the space of the philosophy classroom. It also means that the student who wants to interrupt every philosophy class by saying, this isn't science, this isn't science, or this isn't economics, um, is disrupting the space. We have work to do here. That is an internal enterprise. There will be moments for external commentary and criticism, but research and teaching require time and patience and building on a shared community of inquiry for a good long while. And the classroom and the laboratory or the research space are each almost all of the time insulated spaces against uh, disruptive challenges to the enterprise. It is uncollegial of members of a university, whether they be faculty or students, to keep chasing down faculty and students in other disciplines and saying, your method of inquiry looks like nonsense to me. Doesn't mean you don't ever have a chance to say it, but it means most of the time you let people get around, uh, uh, carry on with their ongoing scholarly business. And that means they have a safe space against your interruptions. Um, we do our scholarly work on the basis of a community of some substantial body of shared assumptions, some substantial body of shared methodology. And it's unwelcome. It's disruptive. It's a waste of people's time to constantly get in the way of that by complaining about that's not really the right method of inquiry. That's not really the right subject to be studying. That's not really knowledge that you're uncovering with your research. So the university overall and the component units, the disciplines, the classrooms, the laboratories, they're each of them built around levels of insulation in order to protect the time and the space to do the patient thing that we're doing as researchers, as teachers, and as students. 
And it, you, you just said there, and I, I like it because it, it'll be a good key term for me to jump into the next question, really. You talked about like levels of insulation, and a lot of what we've been talking about so far is levels of insulation. For instance, we talked about the university insulating itself from the public square or, or politics external. We talked about dis- certain disciplines having levels of insulation between them. Um, talking within a certain discipline or within a certain classroom, even, for example, there are those who think and have said and have made the charge that academic freedom as a, as a value based on all the things you you just described um can also still run into tensions within a field or within a subject of study for example if someone feels and, and everyone agrees for example that within a certain classroom or discussion or within a discipline we're all within the parameters we've set for ourselves within that but let's say within that context perhaps someone is uncomfortable with some conclusions that another student for example or professor has drawn as the arguments have led them there. Perhaps there are some things people feel uncomfortable discussing within the context of everything you just said. All that to say, as I said at the top, people think that there, some people have made the charge that there's a problem today, even within certain insulated spheres, that academic freedom is, is coming into tension with people that want a safe space even further within that space. Now, First, do you, in your experience, of course, you're a professor, do you think this is drawing too far? Do you think that, you know, that's much ado about nothing when people complain about that? So number one, is that even a valid train of thought, again, in your opinion? And, and, but if it is, what do you think about the tension between that sort of level of academic freedom for everyone else within their space, if someone else is uncomfortable or so on and so forth? Good. Um, there, there, there certainly is the potential for tension like that. Um, in my experience, there's very much less of it than people off campus have come to believe through popular cultural and popular media representations of what happens in classrooms and in research spaces. Um, <clears throat> it can be the case that students will say, particularly in either the uh, the more politically engaged of the humanities or in social sciences. It can be the case that people will say there are questions that we shouldn't hear asked and there are answers that we shouldn't hear spoken. Um, <clears throat> that is in the context of the classroom, um, a view that's not compatible with academic freedom. If the question is a well-formulated one in terms of the standards of argument and evidence, if the conclusion that is reached is in good faith reached uh, following those standards of argument and evidence, then everything is fair game. That's the standard of academic freedom. However, however, a couple of things. One of the things is that most of the time, what students and especially students at residential universities uh, ask for is not that every part of their academic lives be insulated from questions they don't like or answers they don't like. What are they asking for? They're asking for two things. One thing is they're asking for safe space somewhere. Very often the safe space is their student associational freedom, their ability to come together with other students with whom they have something in common whether that's something in common is a racial identity or a gender identity or a sexual orientation or a religion or a political identity. Um, their ability to come together with other students with whom they share those things and in a, in a parallel structural way 
do their thing without constant interruption. We want to be able to get together and not have to face constant challenge, particularly not have to face constant challenge from people who seem to think that we don't belong here or that there's something profoundly uh, illegitimate about the thing we're coming together on the basis of. So we have our student club devoted to our shared worship of, in our religion. And the irksome campus atheist who would have been irksome in the philosophy class every time we read a book that mentioned God to say, well, I know that this book is false because it mentions God and there's no God. That student is irksome and disruptive if they constantly go interrupt the meetings of the Campus Crusade for Christ or the Jewish prayer services at Hillel or what have you. So that makes Campus Crusade for Christ or Hillel or what have you a safe space for a different kind of shared enterprise than the classroom. But students legitimately want it. The more marginalized students feel in the rest of their university life, the more important it is for them to have a space like that. Now, that marginalization can extend to calling into doubt the legitimacy of students' place at the university at all. Um, we, other students, we students from a traditionally powerful or traditionally overrepresented majority group, we suspect that members of some underrepresented minority aren't really qualified to be here. That is a challenge that takes its psychic toll. If you are a black student in a university that has affirmative action um, and all day, every day, you're hearing from white students who say, well, I'm, I'm just asking questions. But one of the questions I'm asking is, do you really deserve to be here? Black students very legitimately want a space that is safe from the psychic cost of that challenge over and over again. That is not, that is po as it is popularly represented in the press to be, um, a move to suppress inquiry. It's not a move to say um, there are questions that should never be asked. But this is a question about which new knowledge isn't being discovered. This is not a question that is a live research question being pursued in a spirit of good faith inquiry. Um, and the toll of having it asked of oneself over and over and over again all day, every day, is very real. First, students want their student safe spaces where their presence and their, uh, their important shared activities, their important shared commitments are not constantly called into question. Second, some of them sometimes do then also say um, that question shouldn't be asked in the classroom either. Um, that is not actually very often. Why is it not actually very often? Because there aren't a lot of classes where that's an on-topic question. Right. And, and in a well-structured classroom, most of the time, um, the discussion shouldn't be ending up at the question, um, are you really qualified to be at this university, my fellow student? Don't you think that there's some unjust reverse discrimination in your presence at the university, my fellow student? Uh, a professor has good control of the content they're teaching, unless the content they happen to be teaching is a course on the justice of affirmative action. Mostly that doesn't come up. Uh, and it tends to be a sign of things going badly, of outside political and cultural disputes 
infiltrating the class discussion in ways that are not productive of research and the research and teaching enterprise um, for things to end up there. Now, I think that it is an unfortunate thing that things do end up there often enough that some students at some universities feel that they have to object to that in terms that look like speech suppression, mm. in terms that say, um, I don't want the legitimacy of affirmative action in university admissions to be a legitimate topic for debate in any class that I could possibly be in. Uh, instead of saying, I would rather we stick to what this course is about, and I would rather exclude that irrelevant question, they instead treat it as a content restriction. Uh, but it's very much less frequent than people think. It's not the core of what the idea of safe spaces at universities means, and it's not the core of what student activism about universities is really about. I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think well, a follow-up to exactly what you just said there is, is, is I want to talk about from, from the professor side or the instructor side rather than the student side, because I often find that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of people often, you know, if there's a, uh, sort of violation of the spirit of academic freedom, if you will, or, or, you know, something is not being pursued for, you know, within the confines of the course outline and so on and so forth. Often people always shoulder that on what, what are those kids up to basically, right? That's where a lot of these conversations start. But if we flip it for a second, there have been stories out there and people or people have alleged that, for instance, a professor has made the, the classroom or the seminar or what have you sort of an uncomfortable place uh, to be, whether they, for example, do not choose and openly say they don't want to respect someone's pronouns, for example, or uh, they allow some sort of external discussion about, you know, as again, let's use that example again, uh, uh, transgender folks and their pronouns enter a class about, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, physics or something like that, just to pick something uh, off that we can detach. In that case, would you say that then it's the professor who should be pointed to as the person that's sort of uh, violating the essence of what academic freedom is supposed to be in that case, not the student. Yeah. And, and now we get into one of the very hardest sets of cases for universities to manage organizationally because uh, a really, really good rule of first approximation for the defense of academic freedom of instruction <clears throat> is that what happens in the classroom is solely the professor's prerogative. Hmm. Um, that's, that's a, valuable approximation because most of the time that upper administrators or other people in the university are trying to interfere in the content of a class, it is for reasons that violate academic freedom. Uh, we don't want you teaching that unpopular text. We don't want you reaching that unpopular conclusion. We don't want you doing something that's going to get us into political trouble. But there's nothing in the idea of academic freedom that really justifies a professor going way off course. Of course, I didn't mean for that to be a pun, but it actually, it, it, it works both ways. <laughs> right. um, and uh, so there are, there are clear extreme and limit cases. If a professor of astronomy starts instead teaching astrology, then there's going to be a warning and a second warning, and it will go really quite quickly before the astronomy department says, that's not the knowledge that we teach here. That is not the disciplinarily appropriate work that we are engaged in. 
And that's not what the students legitimately thought they were signing up for when they signed up for your introduction to astronomy class. Cut it out. If the professor doesn't cut it out, that's actually one of the things for which you can ultimately fire a tenured professor. Um, if they're just genuinely not doing the job, which is, say, teaching even roughly approximately, arguably, the material that they're there to teach. Hmm. If they're hijacking the curriculum, and while on a, in a day-to-day organizational space, what happens within the classroom is the prerogative of the professor. In a more fundamental sense, it's the prerogative of the discipline or the department. And if the professor is really not doing the disciplinary or departmental work, if they're really not engaged in the right mode of inquiry, really not teaching the right stuff, um, then it's not a violation of academic freedom to fire someone for that. Now, there's going to be a lot of cases shy of just throwing the syllabus out altogether. Right. So what happens when the professor is teaching the astronomy stuff, but throwing in offhandedly their political prejudices about 89 different things. This, unfortunately, really happens. Um, professors are powerful. In, in the organizational structure of a university, professors are very powerful. Uh, mm-hmm. It is very hard for students to directly challenge them. Right. Uh, and colleagues are not looking over their shoulders most of the time. It is an easy temptation when you have a captive audience day after day, year after year, to start just offering your freelance extramural opinions about stuff that you're not teaching. Right. Um, and it is a violation of what we're supposed to do there. That doesn't mean literally every word of your mouth is going to be about astronomy. It's not like professors don't make pop culture references and jokes and say all kinds of other stuff that is not directly every word about the subject matter. But once they start editorializing about political or religious questions, then we're very much into uh, the domain of wrong, uh, wrong topics infiltrating and corrupting the professor's use of the classroom power. Uh, a lot of the cases that end up rising to public political prominence um, where a professor of some unrelated scientific discipline decides to offer a lengthy freelance account of the use of pronouns for transgender people. Uh, That's not something that they really should be talking about in the class. And the students in the class are right to object. They're right to say, I'm sitting here having to just take whatever you say. You're the one in power in front of the classroom. You're the one handing out the grades. And you're announcing as unquestionable orthodoxy stuff that this class is not about. Um, And it happens to be stuff that for the transgender students or people who are personally close to transgender people um, strikes at some important core of my being or my emotional and moral commitments. Mm. Um, You're expecting me to then do the rest of my learning having been thrown into turmoil by hearing you unilaterally pronounce a whole lot of stuff that I find deeply objectionable. Um, Yes, then the students will complain, and that's going to get picked up in the press as students try to censor their professors. Hmm. Against the background of the normal organizational rule that what the professor says in the classroom goes, it does look like that. 
But what the professor says goes is only an approximation of what we're looking for. It's an organizational tool to defend academic freedom in the classroom against intrusion by nosy administrators or uh, interfering other colleagues. It is not actually itself a defense of literally whatever the professor wants to do in, uh, in the classroom. The professor has that kind of radical Hyde Park freedom extramurally. They can say whatever they want about any topic in their letter to the editor or on their blog or on Twitter. In the classroom, that's not extramural. That's intramural. That's within the walls of the space. And the more freelance opinions they indulge in from their powerful position uh, in front of the blackboard, the more they're putting more and more of their students into various degrees of uh, antagonistic vulnerability. Um, and actually on that exact note, I'm really pleased with where that sort of train of thought ended off for you because it actually ties nicely into another point I want to sort of follow up with, which was, you know, tying it back to the top of what we talked about with the, the intramural extramural, uh, d- distinction where, you know, for instance, at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about the university as an organization, if you will, let's just say, you know, should not be looking at what a professor's doing in their spare time, you know, doing some activity with like a, a political party, let's say, and then if they are coming to campus and they're teaching ast- uh, uh, astrology and they're doing a, 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 a good astro- astronomy, sorry, we almost got ourselves turned around there. <laughs> if they're teaching astronomy and doing a good job of it, for example, on campus, doesn't nothing to do with what they're doing outside the walls of the university. I've seen stories like the following. What, what should students feel like their role or their sort of situation is in a situation where, for example, they know of uh, a professor's activities, stances, perhaps certain views outside of the university. The student may then admit that inside the university, the professor is, of course, doing a good job. I'm heading to this astronomy class and they're doing a fine job at that. But for whatever reason, the type of person they are or their views on the outside make me uncomfortable to even be here with this person, for example. And unfortunately, this course is a prerequisite to something else I have to take. Um, so I tried to leave what I think might be the trickier one toward the end of our conversation. But but nevertheless, I think, again, we talked about the university and the professor before. And now we have the student perspective on the intramural versus extramural conversation. And I think I have seen stories where sometimes the student genuinely feels that the extramural stuff is affecting their academic freedom or their relationship with that professor in the walls of the university. Uh, one of the worst and hardest sets of cases over the last several years has arisen uh, um, with a University of Pennsylvania law professor who, among other things, in her extramural speech made false claims about the qualifications of black students black students who were studying at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. That is to say, her extramural speech was presented in a way that was not irrelevant to the day job. It was speech about the day job. And she made false claims um, that the black students were in a variety of ways systematically underqualified relative to the white students. Black students at UPenn Law subsequently said, you cannot possibly expect that we're going to take a required class and it, in the belief that we're being evaluated fairly. This professor has openly announced that she bears prejudicial ill will against our being academically qualified. Um, this, is, this could have been designed in a laboratory as a worst, hardest academic freedom case. Mm. 
Because if, as I say, extramural freedom is radically protected, uh, precisely so that the professor, the teacher, the researcher isn't punished for having unpopular views. Uh, but what the unpopular views are, are directly about the vocation of the teacher and involve actual falsehood about the students. We haven't talked about falsehood. Um, I'm going to detour a second about that because I think it's it's actually important to this case. One of the other ways in which academic freedom differs from freedom of speech is that freedom of speech comprehensively includes the freedom to lie. Mm -hmm. Um, Misrepresentation that does not rise to the level of commercial fraud, specifically fraud that costs people money in a few circumscribed ways. Uh, Other kinds of misrepresentation are absolutely standardly protected by freedom of speech. Um, This includes the special case of lying that is ghostwriting. I publish a book that has uh, someone else's name on it, or sorry, I I publish a book that has my name on it, but someone else wrote it. I paid them to ghostwrite it for me. Freedom of speech covers this. This is absolutely a standard practice in trade publishing. Um, In the university, we call it plagiarism, and it will get a student expelled and get a professor fired. It's the unforgivable sin in an academic context. Why? I'm just saying something that is protected by my freedom of speech. Right. But what you're saying is not covered by um, the modes of research and inquiry and teaching that we have as our shared enterprise here. That kind of misrepresentation or research fraud uh, go to the heart of the academic mission and they violate absolute core values. So here we have someone who is in her extramural speech lying about her students. Um, I'm very glad that I was never in a position of authority having to figure out how to balance those complicated things because Mm -hmm. um, my very strong urge to say uh, that that's a potentially fireable offense and certainly might be an offense that justifies removing the instructor from teaching required classes uh, on the grounds that we have real duties of care, real duties to protect our students. Um, it's a deeply offensive set of things that she did in her capacity as a teacher. Runs right up against my sense that it's an important, safe organizational shorthand that what happens in the classroom is the professor's business and extramural speech is radically protected. And compromising either of those organizational shorthands really worries me for the door that it opens up for intrusion into. Um, academic freedom on an ongoing basis, those are bright lines that are easier to defend than Mm -hmm. trying to carve out an ongoing system of exceptions. But I will say that the the speech she engaged in was um, really badly undermining of the academic enterprise and that the students who objected, uh, I think, can't reasonably be interpreted as being censors, can't reasonably be interpreted as themselves being opponents of academic freedom and the claim they made that they now cannot reasonably count on being judged fairly in the classroom it's perfectly plausible Mm -hmm. and actually with that i was just heading looking to our clock there we are actually running out of time so i think i'll I'll move us to our our formal wrap-up so jacob we've talked about a lot uh Let's try and bring the conversation full circle, put a finer point on expiration of the question. As you well know, I want to make sure the guest ultimately has the last word in, in each episode. So let me officially ask you, 
What do you then ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on what academic freedom really is? In other words, one, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything, from this conversation, what would you like people to grab? Academic freedom has the really intuitive meaning that researchers get to conduct their research without fear of bad consequences for the conclusions their research uh, finds. It has a couple of really important ancillary meanings too, um, one of which is really counterintuitive and uh, has created a great deal of difficulty in public debate, and that's this idea of extramural speech. Extramural speech is counterintuitive because the more I'm just talking through my hat, the more I'm talking about things that have nothing to do with my scholarly expertise in the public sphere, the more I can rely on this statement that uh, my extramural speech is irrelevant and so the university can't punish me for it. Uh, If I were a professor of theology announcing my atheism, then it's harder for me to say that what I'm doing is irrelevant. Uh, But if I'm a physicist or a biologist and I'm out as an atheist or a communist and the university comes along to fire me under pressure from the governor or the premier or donors or the board of trustees, uh, I can absolutely say my performance as a biologist or a physicist is completely unaffected by this public religious or political dispute. Uh, That confuses people a lot. They say, surely academic freedom doesn't protect me when I'm acting least like an academic. But it protects me in the context of the university. protects me in the context of saying, you will not punish me as an academic. You will not uh, remove me from my capacity as a researcher or teacher for things that are irrelevant to it. That's the counterintuitive part of extramural speech. Then I think it's important to extend both of those values and our understanding of both of those values uh, to protections for students and student inquiry and student learning as well. Students benefit from both senses of academic freedom, from their freedom to pursue ideas where they lead them within the confines of organized modes of inquiry and instruction. And they are free from adverse action being taken against them for stuff that is happening outside the classroom, outside the laboratory, outside the university space. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. So Jacob Levy, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again. Thanks again, Alex. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Seguin. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.